0: Even though he has never competed professionally, Laird Hamilton is considered one of the greatest surfers that ever lived. But he prefers to call himself a waterman. That's a title that describes a person with a deep spiritual connection with the ocean. Specifically, Laird has a passion for riding waves, giant waves, the dinosaurs as he calls them. He admits that he is a risk taker and what he does is dangerous. But he would say not doing what you're born to do can be equally risky. As a young blonde haired boy growing up in Hawaii, Laird was an outcast. In school, he had to defend himself and the best way to do that was simply to be stronger, faster, more daring than the next kid. Those survival skills are what keep him going today. His fitness and workouts are legendary and yet, as strong as he makes his body, he knows that to be on that wave requires him to surrender and let the day dictate. It's the exact same approach Laird takes to his life. Everybody has a story and there's something to be learned from every experience. Use your life as a class. This is Masterclass with Laird Hamilton.
1: Surfing is a relationship with the ocean. The act of riding a wave is something pretty primal, and the fact that you're able to ride the energy of a storm, there's something maybe hard to understand about that, but that brings you a sensation. I mean, you're out there by yourself, ultimately, and that the intimacy of that you're out there in creation, you're in the ocean where life really on the Earth would not exist without, and somehow you're in this soup this thing that we're made of. I mean, we're made of salt water. I think I love the act of riding a giant wave because it kind of bridges the gaps of understanding. I can take a woman in the middle of the country that's never seen a wave, but somehow she sees a little human on this giant wave and maybe she has a river by her house and so she can appreciate what water is and how powerful it is. And it evokes emotion and a reaction without any knowledge of what a wave is and maybe never saw the ocean. You know, I could go to the middle of Afghanistan and show a guy a picture of a giant wave, and it would evoke uh, an emotion out of him that would almost be a primal instinct emotion. It would be something inside of you that you don't know why, and something special about it that way, that, that, that's the spiritual aspect of it, that maybe we're all connected to it in a way that we don't, we don't truly grasp. I grew up on the sand, and I've been drawn to the ocean since before I could walk. My mom brought me to Hawaii when I was three months old. You know, I I think it was the 60s, and my mom, you know, kind of maybe thought that was the end of the world. She didn't know what, you know, there was Vietnam, and there was just all this stuff going on, and I think she really wanted me to have a, a different life. I think she wanted to escape California, and part of that had to do with my father wasn't with her, and so she was alone, and I think she really desired a different opportunity for me. And she felt like it was out there, like, go west, my child. <laughs> and so that was, you know, the birth of it. I think that that when I was young at the beach, I think I was a menace. You know, I think at a certain point, OK, here's Laird again. We better keep an eye on him so he doesn't drown. So I was a little bit of a liability, <laughs> I would say. There's stories of lifeguards coming to my mom's house and saying, well, Laird's you know, out in the rip current again. And my mom would be like, no, he's in his room napping. and they're like, no, he's out in the rip current again. And I'd get rescued probably, you know, every other day for years. <laughs> when I met Bill Hamilton, who later became my father, the foundation of a relationship was body surfing because that's the most, I would say, the most primal aspect of surfing. It's the purest form. It's no fins, no board, no, just your body and the, and the energy of a wave. And so I was, you know, at three, not a great swimmer. And so I would ride his back and use him like my own human dolphin, which my daughters do today. And so our relationship really was founded in the ocean, on waves, riding waves. And my first sensation of going inside of a wave and being in what we call a tube was on his back. I rode him into a wave and would beg him to take me out and, and to do that. I think that was the, the foundation of our whole friendship and, you know and, and our relationship. And you know, I've been needing a dad, so I've been kind of looking for one. At least I thought I did, because I was three and I didn't have one. So I thought he would be the perfect guy. He looked like the guy I wanted to be my dad, and he was a great surfer. And so I had a plan to uh, in- introduce him to my mother, and so I brought him home. I don't know how it was, but I got him back to the house and, and introduced them. And they had had mutual friends, and maybe I just thought I was, I was being Cupid. But at the end, uh, they fell in love and got married, and... And he became my uh my father and then i was surrounded by all these men that were great surfers and great divers and great fishermen and you look back at some of the hawaiian culture and it was like the guy that was the great surfer was second only to the king because that skill and that knowledge was respected and admired by all so at the end of the day i I did feel loved and protected and i think that was probably the most important part that the, all these surfers had on me was I had a family, you know, and, and not having had really any family because we, my mom left the little bit of family that we had on the West Coast to come to Hawaii alone. You start to adapt your tribe. I might've been little, but they protected me and befriended me, and at the end, I think that really had a huge impact on me. In 1969, one of the biggest storms ever to hit the North Pacific, pump surfed in Hawaii. I had to evacuate my house in the middle of the night and the water was breaking through the house and underneath the car. And I think that had a huge impact on me as a young man, just because these were waves that were so big that all the beaches were closed, it was evacuation. It just reminded you that there was something like an untamed dragon, that there was just this huge dragon that no one's ever gotten to be on or, you know, ride. And I think that's kind of the birthplace of my desire to want to ride these giant waves is that they're just, they're like the untamed. It's the, it's the unconquered. We can go to the moon, we can go to Everest. There's a, a statistic that more people have gone to the top of Mount Everest than have ever seen a 100-foot wave. And giant waves are so unique in their appearance, and then they disappear. They vanish. But somehow they're so powerful and so big, and then all of a sudden they're gone, and, and so there's something mystical about, about that. There's something really mystical about how they're formed, all the variables it takes to make this unique situation happen, and then all of a sudden you can actually get on one and ride it? I mean, that's stuff of fairy tales. I mean, and and in a way, I think as a young man, I think as a man, as a human, we all want the fairy tale. And then we get older and time goes by, and pretty soon we don't believe in fairy tales anymore. There's a saying, you know, to retain your youthful enthusiasm. I think that's probably one of the keys to staying young. Being in the ocean has a powerful effect on your spirit. I was born with that missing gene that tells you you're supposed to be scared and or that that's dangerous. And I like the thrill. Waimea Falls is just a, is a big waterfall. And so there's places on the side of the waterfall that you can jump into a big hole down below. I wanted to go to the top, and guys were diving off the top of the falls. I'm six or seven or whatever I was, maybe eight. Probably much too young to be jumping from that high. Let's just put it that way. To me, men or no men, it didn't matter. They could do it, I could do it. So I just jump. I think in that situation, that's where I could find kind of a measurement of my strength was like, hey, I can jump higher than you. That's where the foundation of that kind of ability was to be able to assess and then make the leap of faith because you have to have a certain amount of faith to believe that first of all, you can make it. Second of all, that it's makeable. But there's an assessment always that happens first. I always say there's a difference between crazy and then risk-takers. A crazy guy stands in front of a bus and he doesn't move and he gets run over. A risk-taker might stand there and at the last second he'll jump out of the way. You know, so you you see the bus, you're like, okay, I'll get out of the way. But you're not going to just stand there and go, well, the bus isn't going to hit me. So in a way, there's a certain kind of being realistic about it. You're not just hiking up and just jumping off. You know how deep it is. You know where the rocks are. You've seen other people do it. Maybe you haven't seen other people do it, but you just know what you've done before, and then you assess it, and then you, once you made the decision, then you, then you jump, and you jump with faith. You just jump with the belief that you can, that you, you've done everything you know to be successful, and, and that really is almost formulaic. It's like a philosophy. When I went to school, all my class pictures, I'm the only blonde kid in my school. So I, I started off a little bit like an alien. I was a white person with blonde hair, and I stuck out substantially everywhere I went, and and there was a certain amount of discrimination. And, you know, and I hate to go... I hate to... to... to, oh, poor me, I grew up in this environment, and da-da-da, because it's not that at all. It's just it had to do with that was the reality of it. If I saw an attractive girl at high school, and she liked me and I liked her, that's about the extent of it, because I'm sorry, I really like you, Laird, but I can't go out with you because my brothers and my cousin and my you know, family pressure wouldn't allow... You know, you can't turn your back. You always got to sit in the back of the classroom so you can see what's coming at you, and you you just have these certain things that you just... You don't use the restroom because you don't want to go in there because there are going to be eight guys in there that want to smash your head, and, you know, <laughs> there's all that, you know, getting a fight with a guy, and then your dad's got to fight his dad, and that kind of stuff. I think to have people have hatred towards you for n- no reason that you can think of that you've given them, that you've just because of the way you look, is always confusing. At that point, you're you're trying to figure out how to get out of it. How do I get around it? How do I survive it? I spent a good portion of my adolescent years trying to figure out how to survive that and, and how to get respect. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what people think. People that care about you and that y- you care about are the only ones you can really be concerned with. and. To have those people and those relationships be right, it's a problem in itself. That's enough work. <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to worry about these other people that, that have their opinions because everybody has one. I don't think I ever had a moment where I thought, oh, I have a real gift for surfing. I knew one thing that I, that I loved it and I knew that I was going to do something in it. I didn't necessarily go, okay, I'm good at it. I just knew that I wanted to be great at it from a young age because I was around the best guys in the world and I, and I saw what they were doing and I felt like if they can do it, I can do it kind of thing. So I had that initial seed set very early but I didn't ever have like a moment where I'm great. My father was a competitive surfer. Uh, first, really he was an artist and he was a free surfer and then he got kind of coerced into competition because it started to become that was the way you could make a living and I just watched the trials and tribulations that it brought him, the sorrow it brought him, to be judged by a panel of judges. You know, in my youth, I surfed in a couple contests as a kid, like, hey, win a t-shirt, you and your buddies go out. It's like a fun thing. And then as soon as money came into it and and the aggression towards one another in a competitive situation, I I was already too aggressive. I didn't need a situation that created more aggression and brought out, I felt like, was the worst part of me. I was trying to learn how to, like, deal with suppressing that or maybe, you know, constructively venting it, not cultivating it. And so I, I just vowed not to subject my surfing to the opinions of men. I really appreciate the fact that people respect what I do and that they admire the things that I do because I put a lot of time into it. I've, I've dedicated my life and a lot of blood and a lot of sweat and a lot of air to it. It's an art. I'm an artist. I I, I want people to to love my art, but I want them to love it because they really love it genuinely. Because at the end, I think, when you sleep at night, uh, it really just has to do with how you feel anyway. It doesn't matter what people are saying. They can say, you're the best in the world, and you can go home and be miserable. They can say, hey, you suck, but you can go home and be totally satisfied as long as it's having the effect on you.
0: Laird is always looking to take his art to new heights. He is one of the inventors of something called toe-in surfing. And yes, it's as crazy as it sounds. A surfer is towed into gigantic waves by a jet ski. This technique has gotten layered on waves up to 80 feet tall and more. That's about the size of an eight-story building moving at 50 miles an hour.
1: When I was a kid, there used to be these surf movies that had cartoons in them. And they had these little tiny guys and they had these cartoons with these giant waves and these little tiny guys were surfing on these cartoon waves. The waves were way too big and the guys were way too small for it to be real surfing. And so maybe that was like one of the seeds that was implanted in my brain as a young child. You see these cartoons, you see these little tiny guys in these giant waves, and you're like, okay, maybe we can ride these bigger waves. And a lot of what I've been able to do, I didn't see anybody do it, but I had an idea that it could be done, and I think that's the mother of all of the things that I've done have really been that. If you feel it and, and you can do it, then it can be great. Before the four minute mile was broken, no one could break it and they tried for years and years and then one guy broke it and the next year 20 guys broke it. So really the four minute mile was an imagination barrier, not a time barrier and that really, the imagination of being able to and having that ability. And I think that's allowed me to do quite a few things that I would not have been able to do had I not had that kind of imagination, had I not had that belief in being able to to go off your instincts and go off a feeling that you can do it and actually pull it off and do it. But it's that initial barrier that's hard to break. And, And the only way you can break that kind of barrier is to really have a belief that it's possible. Even though everybody's going, you can't, and all these other things that that really they're just imagination barriers that not they're not actually physical barriers. I think there's something to be said about being able to envision something that you haven't seen, and then actually kind of bringing it to life. I love the process of innovating. It's important to be an innovator. Towing itself is a technique that we use with a mechanized instrument like a boat or a jet ski, and we. Like a water skier, we pull a surfer onto waves that are physically impossible to catch. If a wave 100 feet high goes 50 miles an hour, and you're trying to catch it with your arms, it's a a physical impossibility. The space shuttle can't take off by itself, but once it's flying, it can fly. And it's a little bit like towing. We can't catch the waves by ourselves, but once we can be on the wave, then we can ride the wave. The invention of towing, it really came from, first of all, boredom, which is where a lot of great ideas come from, just because you're in the middle of the summer, we're driving around with a boat, towing behind a a boat, and, and there's a small swell, and we let go on a wave and rode a wave from the back of the boat, and then at that point, we had the revelation that getting towed in is a concept, like, let's apply it. And so we got the idea, okay, we can be towed on and then we implemented it and then we started to refine it. Okay, what would be a better board than riding the ones that we're riding? A smaller board with foot straps. Okay, that would be better. So we refined the, the materials and made it more and more efficient until it's at the point it is today where we can ride most anything that the ocean throws at us. And so you learn faster, you get better, you get stronger. But ultimately the technique just really opened up the possibility to ride the biggest waves in the world. Chopu is a... Unique wave in Tahiti that breaks on a barrier reef, and it breaks pretty much on a cheese grater is how I would describe it. It's a a live coral reef. It's one of the most powerful waves in the world, but it was a wave that I had never been to. This wave is the most cylindrical wave in the world. The volume of water that lands on that reef and the power it has is just it's unsurpassed. And we went in 2000 and uh, implemented tow-in to that wave. Everybody would leave normally when it was that big there and go somewhere else, and we went and rode it, and we rode some waves there that were considered some of the heaviest waves ever ridden, and uh, still to this date, they're considered to be some of the heaviest, and that wave is one of the heaviest waves in the world, and it's just, you don't wanna fall there, and, and there's we've there's been some deaths there, there's been some, some broken backs, there's been some torn up humans. When I rode the wave at Chopu, and I rode the first big wave that I went down there, as soon as I released, it was full commitment. You don't kind of let go. You don't kind of ride waves. You either ride them or you don't. And I was riding this one and and I just had an inner battle. I had a fight with myself about jumping off and staying on and jumping off. And I had the two guys in my brain and one was like, oh, you better jump off. Then I was like, if you jump off, you can't make it. At the end, the good guy won and I stayed on and I made the wave. <laughs> but but. But for the length of, of time that you're on that wave, and I mean, that wave is a short wave in the scheme of, of how long waves can be. I mean, 10 seconds, eight seconds, but it's the longest eight or 10 seconds of your life. I mean, that thing is, there's enough time to have a conference call, you know, with yourself and, and battle about, you know, what to do and what not to do. And that was an emotional wave because first of all, we didn't know waves like that existed. Second of all, that you could get on it and ride it, and be inside of it—it just, just doesn't seem. You feel like you're getting away with something. Like, should we really be here? Like, we were not supposed to be right here, right, doing this. Like, like you feel like you've, you know, you're 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 getting away with doing something that maybe you you know you shouldn't, (laughs) and you are, (laughs) actually. And I think that's one of the hardest things to do. I think that's the way you use fear. That's what separates. People is is how they use their fear and panic is is one of the reactions that you have when you're scared and freezing is another one and you try to be smarter and make better decisions and fear is a powerful enzyme <laughs> in you. You can do some pretty radical stuff with, with fear if you use it correctly and it can be the thing that, you know, in that moment can dictate whether you have success or failure. People ask me a lot, like, "What's your worst situation?" And you know, I, I think I have a lot of them, there a lot of different ones. I've been lost at sea. I had a jet ski hit me before. And just in my left foot alone, I've had six broken ankles, a broken arch, broken toe. I just broke uh, four metatarsals. You know, boards hit me. Hit my collarbone. 125 stitches in my head. Ribs out of my lung. Punctured cheek. Cut throat. Snowboard cut throat. You know, I've probably had almost a thousand stitches over my my career. With just on and on. Just it's it's it's. It's a long, arduous list. <laughs> but it's what I do, you know? it's it's part. I need to keep doing what I do, because it's what I do. And it's also who I am. And so it'd be like, for me to not do this is like saying to me, don't be who you are, then I wouldn't know who I am and what I was doing, and which would be confusing to all my family as well. They need me to be who I am and do what I do for them as well. It seems selfish in that, but it seems, more selfish if I stop doing what I do and then said, well, you know, I got kids now and, da, 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 and all that stuff. That seems even worse. That's my one piece. My one piece of life is that, that I ha- I actually can possibly dictate some of my happiness or my failures or my success, but I have a play in it. I can do that. The other stuff's way out of my, um, it's way out of my control. But this thing, I I have a little bit of say in it. And I can, if I can do these things that bring me fulfillment and use my imagination and make me feel creative and bring out these things in me that help me be complete and help me be all that I can be, that I need to do that. I need to spend all the time I can doing that. Well, a great philosopher once said, the only thing I truly know is I know nothing. (laughs) So I start with that. (laughs) But instincts are one of the most powerful emotions that we have. Our instincts have allowed our own species to survive. Without instincts, we wouldn't have we wouldn't have made it. Why do you get a feeling sometimes you go someplace and you're like, you know what, something's not right. And so in a way, I think I've had a few of those situations that happen where I start going, you know what, I need to start cultivating that. So I start working on the instinct of, okay, when you have that feeling and that voice in your head and you kind of get the thing, say something, react to it. And then it it starts happening more and you start reacting to it. And before you know it, you kind of reawaken it. Even though we ignore it and we kind of bury it with all our technology, You have that voice. It's in you. And so I think that when you cultivate that, you you start to tap into something that's super primal and but super essential for our survival. It's a pretty interesting thing that we've lost that we I think that we could probably use. (laughs) Part of the way you're able to actually make the right moves is by not trying to make the moves, just let the moves happen. And I think that's, you know, one of the things I can say about the ocean and about my relationship with the ocean is Nothing's going to teach you patience better than waiting for a wave. But I want to be ready if if something special happens so I can take advantage of it. So I'm not able to be ready. I want to be ready for something like, like the swell that happened to me on Maui where my friend Brett got hurt. There was a, a unique storm that came close to Hawaii and we had no weather forecasts. No one forecasted this storm. And the surf started out in the morning, 15 feet, which is like 20, 25-foot faces. That's how we we measure them. And then as the day went on, it just started getting bigger and bigger. And so by midday, surf was probably in the 70-foot, 70, 75-foot range, maybe close to 80-foot faces. We started surfing some of these waves and the waves started getting bigger and, and bigger. And by the time we ended that session or we were getting to the end of our session, the the, the faces were, I, I'm saying they were somewhere to 80 to 100 feet high. I caught a wave uh, that was probably one of the biggest waves I've ever been on. I got on the wave and I had to dive into the wave and I and I came up in the back and Brett was on the ski and he came and rescued me like he normally does. And we were both on the jet ski trying to get away from the next wave and, and we were consumed by the next wave. Brett was... Uh, severely injured and we were pushed by probably five or six waves maybe seven waves into this lagoon And, and brett had uh torn the back of his leg and and was starting to bleed out so i i tourniqueted his leg with a wetsuit that i had on and gave him my flotation device our jet ski had been washed about maybe a quarter mile from where we were and so i swam naked to to the jet ski hoping that it would still be running the lanyard was missing, so I, I jury-rigged the ski and got it started up, and I got back, and I got Brett on the back of the ski and was able to uh, kind of rescue him, bring, bring him back to shore. I do remember at one point uh, when I was bringing him in that the one thing I didn't want to do was try to explain to his wife and his kids that he wasn't going to be there. So I was like, I, want, I was wanting him to, to be good. You know, I needed him to be, to be okay, so... He was going unconscious by the time I got him to the beach, but I had already been radioing, because I had a radio with me. I had been radioing the Coast Guard and the fire department, so they had the ambulance waiting when we got there and got Brett in the ambulance and got him taken care of, and then after I knew he was good, then I went back out with a friend of mine. We went back out and, and rode, uh, rode a few more waves, and at that point, it was probably 100, 120-foot 100, faces, something like that. The fear is not going out again. First of all, I wanted to take advantage that I might not ever see waves like that again. And then I second of all, I wanted to get back on the horse. I didn't want to let the time go by and get in my head. And I felt, just out of respect to Brett, out of respect to the day, that, that I, I needed to go there again. I needed to go there and be there. The dinosaurs were there. <laughs> the dinosaurs were there. I had to see them again. We have a saying in Hawaii, lickings are for everybody which means getting pounded is for everybody. Everybody gets pounded. The best guys get pounded. People go, oh, yeah, I saw you crash, man. You never fall. I'm like, I've fallen more than you. Like, I've fallen more than most guys will ride successfully. I'm, you know, that's part of what you do, but I always say it's the underappreciated art of crashing. There's a real skill that comes to crashing well and knowing what to do. You don't get a, a lot of uh, applause for it. You know, you don't get a lot of praise for crashing well, but it's an art and, and the ability to, to know where you are underwater and know how to get back to the top and know how to cover your head when you're getting near the bottom and just these things that you've developed over time. Sometimes I, I look at these injuries as like, these are messages, you know, like some of them are messages of like, hey, slow down or, or think a little more, think before you leap or, or whatever it is. But what's interesting about an injury is a little bit like a failure. Injuries in a way force an evaluation at the end. And what comes from that is knowledge. When you have control of any of it, then you can use that as a lesson to not make the mistake next time, maybe change the way you do it, get stronger, get smarter, get better equipment, wear more flotation. I mean, whatever it takes to, you know, (laughs) to keep going. I think one of the goals that I've had from the beginning is, is that I always wanted to love surfing. I said, whatever I do, I want to make sure that I don't ever stop loving surfing. And in order to continue to love it, I need to keep creating aspects of it that I'm pursuing, that I'm that I'm striving towards. Thomas Edison says, to be an inventor, all you need is two things, an imagination and a pile of junk. For example, that board that flies, we call it the flying board, but somebody had made a apparatus for riding behind a ski boat, and it's they sit on them and they lift above the water. And somebody had one in their garage, and I asked the guy if I could borrow it, and then I tried to stand on it. And then once I knew I could stand on it, I started building prototypes around standing on it because I knew we could ride waves with it. And from there we developed a standing model that we ride waves with. And since then we've totally kind of revolutionized the type of waves we can ride and where we can ride. I always say that I have goals that always, they morph. You know, I have morphing goals that when I get near it, I change it and it gets so that I'm always striving because I, I feel like the last thing I'd ever want to do is just achieve a goal and be like, okay, I'm good now. And then be like, okay, so now what? I think that that would kind of take away one of my purposes. It would take away one of my missions. I want to have a continual pursuit. I think that would be, as a hunter-gatherer, I think if you stop having a, something to hunt, then <laughs> you, you, you kind of you lose the whole point. <laughs>
0: Although Laird admits to taking risks, he always does the work necessary to prepare himself for when the dinosaurs come, and he uses his fear to his advantage. His refusal to put limits on his imagination has allowed him to do things other people thought were just impossible, but he did it. Ask any surfer why they surf and they'll describe an experience that sounds almost mystical. Clearly, there is something special that happens out there. And it's why Laird has devoted his entire life to searching for that one perfect dream wave.
1: I grew up in a little house on the beach on Kauai in front of a wave that no one ever surfed. And I left to go ride these giant waves. And now I've come back to this place where I grew up. And next to it is a wave called King's Reef, which has the potential to be one of the biggest waves in the world. But it breaks sometimes only every 10 years correctly. And so now I'm back home to possibly try to ride that. It's just funny, in life it seems like I left where I grew up to search the world and only to arrive back at my own home to find that my life's challenge was really just in front of my house. (laughs) (laughs) If you've set before yourself some sort of goal, some sort of achievement, something that you're striving towards, then you're gonna be discouraged along the way. And the more committed you are to it, the more discouraged you're going to be, the more you're going to be tested. How great would the goal be or how great would the achievement be had you not been tested along the way? I think part of it has to do with the fact that when you set yourself up a certain mission, that those tests and those things along the way will ultimately dictate how great the success is, how great of achievement it is for you in your own mind when you put your head on your pillow. My greatest successes and achievements is that I'm still here right now. That I'm actually right here right now communicating, and that I have some beautiful children and a beautiful wife and a beautiful life. Like that I'm still able to pursue the thing that I've started out to pursue as a young man, and and I've continued to pursue it and, and I and will continue, God willing. I'm just trying to get the maximum out of my trip here on the planet. You know, that being said, is it a dangerous thing? Living is dangerous. Living's hard. I continue to seek the dream waves. I've had some dream waves, but I want to have some other dream waves. So that's part of the aspect of surfing that keeps you striving. It's an endless pursuit. And I spend my entire life every year in preparation for what, you know, the waves to come, you know, and it could be this winter. This could be the winter of winners, where, you know, we don't see another one like this for 50 years. And so I don't know it. No one knows it. And what a great thing. It's like this unknown, in a time of knowing everything, somehow we don't know. How come we don't know? we should know. We know everything else. Why don't we know this? And so in a way, I think that's what makes it special. For me, that's what makes it worthy to dedicate a life like your whole life. At the end, there's everything else is a backseat. First, the family, and then it's the, the mission.
0: And the mission is this, it's magic, you know. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Masterclass, the podcast. You can follow Masterclass on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Masterclass podcast.